As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 1946, director Alfred Hitchcock and star Cary Grant gave the world an espionage thriller that set the stage for every spy movie to come. In 2023, we go back to basics with a reliable bourbon workhorse. The film is notorious. The whiskey is 1792 small batch. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are kicking off our last director of the season, one Alfred Hitchcock, with his 1946 espionage thriller, Notorious. Never heard of him. Brad? Yeah, I don't really know where to start with this, but there's a couple of leads that I am considering <laughs> burying here. Let's start with Hitchcock. Uh, we have heard of him before because he is already one of our most watched directors on Film and Whiskey. I believe up to this point, we have done four films by Mr. Hitchcock. Really? And after this miniseries, we will be at nine and he will be far and away, I think, our, or maybe tied with Scorsese for the number yeah. one spot. Well, man, have we watched nine Scorsese films? You, you know what? Now that I think about it, I think we've still, he'll still have the crown. I think it's 10 Scorsese films. Jeez. Yeah. We haven't watched 10 Scorsese films. We've watched a whole bunch, man. Jeez Louise. Yeah. I was going to say, because we watched, what, Vertigo, Rear Window, Psycho. North by Northwest. And North by Northwest. Yeah. Yeah. So what we wanted to do, let let me rephrase, what I wanted to do with this last miniseries was Hitchcock is one of those directors that is in very rarefied air, like a Scorsese, like a Spielberg, you know. Actually. Go ahead. To Catch a Thief. Oh, yeah. Oh, so he will be tied with Scorsese. (laughs) Yeah, he sure will. Oh, To Catch a Thief. No bueno. (laughs) I did not enjoy that film. (laughs) I was not a big fan. Gorgeous to look at, but not much going on there. Yeah. With Hitchcock, as with some of these other big name directors, there is a tier of their films that is kind of like essential viewing, not just to watch their films, but if you're going to be a fan of classic films, you have to watch X number of their films. And then there's kind of a second tier where it's not just, all right, you watch these if you're a completist, but it's also like, hey, there, you know, Hitchcock has these five more films in the IMDb top 250. So as you start to round out your education, you kind of have to watch these ones too. And so where most directors would already have like a massive fall off in their second tier, directors like Hitchcock are still kind of working with their A material. And so I picked five movies that I I could have picked, I think, six or seven. I just tried to pick five that I thought would would help round out our classic movie viewing here, starting with Notorious, a movie that I said last week I've never seen before, Brad. Yeah. Well, and the the fascinating thing for me is that, you know, this is 1946. Before we got on the air, Bob, you informed me that this is like his 12th, 15th, 18th movie. Yeah, Hitchcock Hitchcock made his bones in England at the end of the silent era. He didn't come to America until 1940. His first American film is a movie called Rebecca, 
which is a movie that won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. So he kind of arrived on the shores with a big bang. And so by 46, yeah, he's not only one of the most famous filmmakers in the world, but he is a very seasoned veteran here. Yeah, which is which is interesting because. Spoiler alert, there are things about this movie that felt less polished than a lot of his later films. You know, Brad, I have to agree. Like I said, I've never seen this movie before. And there's a there's a you know, he's making at least one movie a year at this point. But I kind of group this movie in with some of his other early 1940s films. So in 41, he makes a movie called Suspicion with Cary Grant, which is considered, you know, among his classics. He also makes a movie, I think the year before this, called Spellbound, which co-stars Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. And so in this one, you've got Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. And I've always uh, just pictured all three of those movies as kind of like this mishmash. And I never knew where to start with any of them. So I've never seen any of them. So this is kind of like knocking out one of a trilogy for me. And I have to agree with you, man. I, I was thinking about To Catch a Thief a lot as I watched this movie because it really finds its footing in the second half for me. But the first half is kind of uh, incomprehensible slash very boring. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if we should move into Brad Explains, but <laughs> I am 100 percent with you. It felt like I'm. this is a very rare thing. I think I've maybe said this once, maybe twice before in our 250 plus episodes, however many we've done. I think this movie should have been a little longer. Oh, that's a scorching hot take. It is a scorching hot take. It's like, a, what, an hour and 42 minutes, I think. Yeah, it feels like and three. I, well, that's the thing, though. I feel like they needed more time to develop the relationships mm -hmm. and the, the characters. And I feel like even just like 10 minutes, mm -hmm. hour and 53, hour 55, and you would have had just a little extra where it didn't it wouldn't have felt quite as rushed. Well, let's go ahead and move into Brad Explains so that I can respond to what you just said. But uh, I love it when we already give our thoughts on the movie at the six minute mark of the episode. <laughs> You're welcome. As you and I know, Brad, we only need 60 seconds of a listener's attention to be counted as a download. So, mm -hmm. you know, folks, if you don't like where we're going with this, thank you for your time. We'll see you next week. But at this point, <laughs> we are going to move over to Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. This is a first time watch both for Brad and for myself. Brad, I, you know, we've already tipped our hand a little bit. This movie doesn't totally work for us. And I feel like sometimes that bleeds into Brad Explains. Uh, I, I sense that you have more energy tonight than you have sometimes when you're not a fan of a movie. <laughs> like it hasn't quite approached that zone where you just completely check out, you know, <laughs> which bodes well for Brad Explains. So you've got one minute on the clock. Go ahead and spoil the whole thing, because I don't know if we're going to give this movie our recommendation or not. Anyway, 60 seconds, Brad, and go. The film Notorious is about a daughter of a convicted German Nazi spy mm. in America. I'm I'm assuming that this is like set during the war. Would, I think so. Say or or okay. immediately after, like Nuremberg after. kind of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the daughter is played by Ingrid Bergman. She is convinced by an American spy basically, uh played by Cary Grant 
to play the double agent to go to South America and try to infiltrate a ring of Nazi scientists and, you know, influencers and whatever they are. They love Nazi people and Inger Bergman's going to take them down, Bob. Mm Mm-hmm. They have a party where they're trying to break into the secret vault, which is in the wine cellar, where Cary Grant finds out that they're storing uh, uranium, which is used to make the atomic bomb. Ten seconds. They try to poison Ingrid Bergman so they can protect themselves, they being her now husband, the German guy, Mm -hmm. and his mother. Boom. Boom. That was actually a really good Brad Explains, and I'll tell you why. Because Mm. you broke down all of the things that happen in the movie Mm -hmm. and you didn't really get into themes of the movie. And I think that's a really good jumping off point, because part of the reason this movie doesn't work for me, Brad, is that I was having to both read along with what was happening in the movie on like the IMDb synopsis page, because (laughs) there were some things in the script that weren't totally clear. And I felt like it was really jumping around and kind of leaving out crucial elements. Yes. And at the same time, I was also reading like the Wikipedia page and, you know, like the Criterion Collection essay and uh, which which focused more on themes of the movie. Roger Ebert loved this movie, thought it was one of the 10 best films ever made on one of his lists that he made, said it was his favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie and went in on the themes of love and trust and betrayal in the movie. And I started to put the, the puzzle together a little bit. And I feel dumb saying this because I think fans of this movie will will know this right off the the jump. But this is a movie that is primarily structured like a romantic melodrama of the time. And he kind of shoe not shoehorns in. He kind of Trojan horses a spy thriller into the whole thing. And then by the end of the movie, the spy thriller elements take over. And I think when you view it through that lens, the movie makes a lot more sense that it is trying at the very least in the first half. To establish this deep, dramatic whirlwind romance of forbidden love between Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant. And as this sort of love triangle forms between Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and her Nazi husband, played by Claude Rains, it it tests the boundaries of all three of them. And it really gets into the themes that Hitchcock's trying to explore. Now, whether or not it succeeds at that, I think, is another story. But I thought that was really helpful for me to read because I wasn't quite seeing it on the screen. And once someone kind of told me the lens to start looking at the movie, I thought that the structure of it made a lot more sense, you know, regardless of whether or not it was actually successful at that. See, Bob, you did about a good, as good a job as Hitchcock did of excla- explaining the themes. What, what are the themes? I didn't catch anything about the actual themes of the movie in there. Well, I definitely said them explicitly. Uh, love and trust and betrayal. Ah, and I talked about romantic melodrama. Damn it, Brad. Just listen to me once in a while, man. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, I, I was listening, but there was a whole lot of words and I don't know if anything got said. And I think that's like kind of my issue with the movie is like, yeah, there's there's themes of love and, and betrayal and and mistrust, but there's no establishment of who these characters are. Yes, that is done compellingly. I agree. And we were going to get there, Brad. And you just had to insult me along the way just to piss me off as we jump into this journey today, Brad. It makes makes for better episodes. God, I hate you so much sometimes. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I guess let's just start there. We can talk about the performances and stuff later. 
the movie doesn't do a good job establishing what it wants to be about. And the point I was trying to make is I was trying to be kind to the movie by saying like, oh, once someone explicitly told me what to look for, I could see it. But the movie does a really bad job of just showing it. So the movie starts out with Bergman uh, at her father's trial getting convicted. You can tell that he is some sort of a Nazi because he's getting convicted for treason. She has a party at her house that night where she gets really, really drunk to try to forget about the whole thing. And there's this mysterious guy at her house, Cary Grant. You have no idea who he is or what he's there for. Um, and you don't really know like what her whole deal is. You know that she's the daughter of a Nazi, and that can't be good. And then all of a sudden <laughs> she's like, I'm very drunk. Let's go for a drive. And he goes, sure. And immediately I'm like, what is going on in this movie? Like, where are we going? What are we doing? There's an extended sequence of her drunk driving and getting pulled over by the cops. And then you you kind of start to piece together. Oh, I think Cary Grant's working for somebody in the government because he gets them off of a ticket. Uh, and then immediately you get thrust into this whole uh, espionage thing where they tell Ingrid Bergman, like, hey, come come with me. We're going to go down to South America. And now they're there. And then all of a sudden she's in love with Cary Grant. And that comes out of left field. And we spend 20 minutes with them just being kind of frolicky. And then the movie finally clicks into place enough to tell us what it's about at like, I don't know, the 35 minute mark. Is that fair? Like, is that a good uh, timeline of when we finally start getting crucial information? Yeah, I, I think so. And the the hard part is that even as you start to get crucial information, you're like, oh, okay. There's this woman who kind of sucks and this guy's trying to get her to do things for her, but he falls in love with her. Like, I think it comes back to kind of something you said earlier that the movie doesn't show it to you. It it tells you a lot of things. Mm. And Cary Grant has to deliver dialogue that's just bad. And he does his best with it because he's Cary freaking Grant. But at the end of the day, when he has to tell the audience you're a drunkard and, and you, you always will be. And you're just chalking up things on your nightstand and sleeping around. And, and like, you're just basically, he basically just says, you're a whore and you always will be. Right. And, and, and that's, that's her character arc. Well, as he sees it, right? Because as, they're both, right. yeah, they're both like hiding things from each other. And I think that like, again, what they're trying to do is, the romantic comedy thing where it's like, oh, there's a there's a breakdown of communication that could have been easily solved if they just said the thing to each other. And it gets to yeah. the point where, like, by the end of the movie, the Nazis have figured out that Ingrid Bergman is an American agent and they start poisoning her slowly. And she and Cary Grant are at such odds because they have fallen in love. And then she gets this assignment to infiltrate this Nazi ring which then leads to her getting a marriage proposal from Claude Rains. And the Americans basically ask her very nicely, will you please marry this guy? And she goes, sure. So then she mm -hmm. does that. And now they're mad. Cary Grant and her are mad at each other because she wants him to fight for her and he won't. And he thinks that she's just back to her old ways and being promiscuous. And so, you know, it it plays like <laughs> a romantic comedy that has absolutely no laughs in it. And I think yeah. that like. These two actors are such good actors that it almost still works. Yes. But the plot mechanics of that part of the movie really fall flat for me. Yeah. Well, and especially even when 
they're talking about the people that she needs to go after. The the Americans know that uh, Seba- Alex Sebastian, played by Claude Rains, was a friend of her father's. And so they're just like, well, you know, maybe she can get in. But then she just kind of conveniently goes, yes, and he was also in love with me. And they're mm. like, whoa, how convenient. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and it just... It just feels very contrived. And like, it's not even like it's like plot holes or anything. Like, no. It, it, it's just that the plot is like spoon fed to the audience. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't even know if contrived is the right word. It, it feels like spread thin. It's like there's yeah. very little there to develop. And they're trying to hold like two halves of a plot in tension with each other. And the one half is mm-hmm. this love triangle. And the other half is the actual like infiltrating Nazi stuff. And they try to put them both on equal footing. But not only are they not of equal importance or equal thrills, I guess, but they're also like one is almost underdeveloped because you don't get enough Nazi infiltration stuff because they're trying to overdo the love stuff. And there's just not Mm -hmm. enough material there to justify how much time they spend on it. Okay, let's stop crapping all over the movie. Let's just talk about performances, get into our normal stuff. Let's start with the two leads because I think we should move to Claude Rains when we start talking about the good stuff of the movie. (laughs) Yes. Does that make sense? Like, I I like that part of the movie better, so I think Mm -hmm. maybe he'll be our bridge to that. But Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman are so fascinating to me in this movie, Brad, because I think especially towards the end of the movie... I really do buy that they have like a deep abiding love for each other when he rescues her at the end of the film. It's like it's really well Mm -hmm. done. But I also wouldn't say they have chemistry, quote unquote, like there are no sparks flying off this couple. And part of it is because they hate each other for most of the movie. But even then, like, you know, when Harry met Sally is all about two people who hate each other the whole movie. I'm never at a loss for believing that both of these people are like really horny and really sexy. (laughs) And they like, they have a great couple scenes early in the early going where they're like just being horny at each other. And it's really (laughs) compelling because they're both, like I said, phenomenal actors. Do Do we need to add that into the director scoring? How did they direct compelling horniness? I do. I do like the idea of be horny at each other. (laughs) Um, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is like the, the sparks don't fly the way they do with like Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn and, or Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. Like they're a believable Mm -hmm. couple and I see what they're trying to do. And it's a kind of a much sexier thing, but I don't really feel the it factor off of them. Well, and, and I think that this is where Hitchcock's, uh, avoidance and hatred of the Hayes code really kind of comes into play because mm. you know the the whole scene where they're on the balcony making out like the Hayes code at this point said you weren't allowed to kiss for more than three seconds and he has them making out for like a minute and a half mm-hmm. but it's but it's just like you know pecks and kisses on the neck and they're supposed to talk while they're doing it and it just it feels way more awkward than just have, you know, and granted, he's not allowed to do this, mm-hmm. but like it feels a lot more awkward than a film 10 years later when you just have like a 25 second passionate kiss where you're like, oh, yeah, they they really like each other. I don't know. It, it felt it just felt that whole scene felt kind of funky to me. 
Cary Grant is an interesting figure in this movie. So five years before this, he plays a character in the movie Suspicion that is, is he a villain? Is he not a villain? And that's what the whole movie is about. And there's actually like some really cool nods in this movie to the movie Suspicion where he is suspected of poisoning his wife in that movie. And Grant was really, really good at leveraging his own movie star persona to whatever the character needed. So like if he needed to be a charming, perhaps murderer, he could play it that way. He could be kind of uneasy, Cary Grant. He could also be like the absolute buffoon falling over himself in a bunch of slapstick comedies. He could play loose with it like a George Clooney type like he does in Charade. This movie is kind of like in between charming and super duper scary Cary Grant. And it's it kind of comes across mostly as like restraint. And I think yeah. it does a good job of showing his range. And I don't know if anyone else would have been better in this role. So I don't want to crap on Cary Grant. I just don't know if this is a really compelling character at all. No, I, I 100% agree. And I think it's because he's not allowed to lean into either role far enough. Like, mm. he's not allowed to be the uh, scorned lover for enough of the film. Because at that point, the film is mostly focused on Claude Rains and Ingrid mm -hmm. Bergman. Mm -hmm. And yet, he's also not allowed to be the super spy other than one scene where he knocks a wine bottle off and cleans it up. Mm -hmm. But You know what I mean? Like... That's the extent of him being a super spy. And right. I, I think the the scene that epitomizes the lack of chemistry between Ingrid and Carrie, as well as just kind of the the awkwardness of some of the transitions of the film is when they are caught by Claude Rains when, you know, he kisses her and like it, it just didn't work. He like he kisses her and he tells her to push him off, but then she doesn't do that. And like, it should have been, I, I don't know, this is just my brain. It should have been like, I'm going to kiss you and then you immediately slap me. Right. And no, they like passionately kissed. And then she casually is like, oh, I don't actually love him. He forced himself on me. Right. And you're like, well, none of, none of this is, is working. And I, for me, I don't think it's Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. I think it's Hitchcock and the script. Yeah, I was going to say, it's more the script than Hitchcock. And the funny thing is, this script gets nominated for an Academy Award. It is apparently a well-respected script even today. And I think that has a lot more to do with, like, the plot mechanics and the way that the movie ends than it does with some of these, what I would mm -hmm. call, like, setup scenes. Because the setup yeah. is so sloppy. But I don't want to get too far away from our two leads. And let's talk about Ingrid Bergman. Primarily because I came away from this movie even more impressed with Ingrid Bergman as an actress than I've ever been. And I, I love Casablanca is maybe my favorite movie. She is next level good in this movie, Brad, in a movie that I don't know that I love. If, if she is not playing this lead role, I think it's an even worse movie. A hundred percent, dude. Ingrid has an ability to not only keep the camera like magnetically attached to her and your attention attached to her. I think that what she does with her eyes in this movie mm -hmm. as she like flashes hurt and betrayal and then covers it up with an iron wall mm -hmm. really quickly mm -hmm. is just it, it, like it's act like it's acting 400 like she is teaching an advanced class in acting here. Yeah. Talk about knowing your own strengths and leaning into them like the scene where she figures out she's being poisoned. 
And because they say, like, don't don't pick up her coffee. And the way her eyes are just putting things together in that room. It is such compelling stuff. She is so good at playing scared. She is so good at playing confident. And she has to do both of them in this movie. And the emotional range, like, it's it's just a master class, man. I cannot say enough good things about her. Well, I haven't seen like a ton of Ingrid Bergman movies, but I feel like in this one, something that I enjoyed is that she allows her German accent to just slightly come through throughout the film. And I think it just adds a little bit to that tension of like she is trying to infiltrate this German scientist spy ring Mm -hmm. and she's trying to be one of them. And and there's just a little hint of it coming through that I, I personally thought was really well done. Yeah, she has that like. Just enough of a European accent. She's actually a Swedish actress. She's not German, but like the Swedishness sounds kind of German. So she like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's to her benefit in a movie like this. And I think that that's a good segue into talking about that part of the movie where she is married to Claude Rains. Now, I have gone on record saying Claude Rains is one of my favorite actors of all time. He, he is like a Thomas Mitchell in that he's always playing a character actor. And he is, I think, to this day, underappreciated for what he brings to the table. In this movie, he does something that I very rarely see him do, and that is kind of literally and figuratively let his hair down a little. Like, he is much Hmm. more suave, and he's playing, even though he's clearly an older man in this movie, he's playing it with an energy of a younger man. And I think that's really interesting, because even in the script, he talks about, like, being a man of my age. But he's playing it kind of loose and he is, I mean, you know, for lack of a better word, like he is a romantic lead in this movie. And Mm -hmm. I think it works really, really well because you've seen him in movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where he's playing much older than he is in real life. In Casablanca, you know, he's the womanizer, but he's a very prim and proper sort of officer. And that's kind of what you're used to seeing from Claude Rains. And so to see him in like in a bathrobe, And just kind of flirting with Ingrid Bergman, it works really, really well. And it's a side of him I've never seen before. And on top of that, you see him like truly smitten. Mm -hmm. And later in the film, when he finds out that she's an American agent, like he like he plays heartbroken and devastated incredibly well. And I think his mother is a perfect foil in that scene to, you know, kind of poke and prod at him and the, the way he's acting. And it like it just has a, it's a perfect setup to show him processing what's going on. And I think that's it seems like that, that this movie needed more of. Mm-hmm. It needed more opportunities for the characters just to sit back and process what was going on in this, you know, c- constructed world of of Nazi spies that the other characters didn't get to have. And Claude Rains does get to have. Mm hmm. And, you know, his mother is one dimensional and she's exactly what she needs to be for Claude Rains to develop. And I I wish they had more of it because Claude takes it and runs with it. Right. Yeah, I think in in a lot of ways what this movie is missing, it's not just like the the kind of hyper focused direction that Hitchcock has in the later stages of his career. But it's also that, like, it just doesn't have that kind of weirdness that Hitchcock gets into sometimes like. The mother character in this movie is really similar to the mother character in Psycho. Like, there's a weird kind of, like, psychosexual thing going on there. And uh, Claude Rains is very clearly just getting cucked and I guess is okay with it, you know? Like, there's these unexplored 
weird sexual dynamics in this movie. And I'm not saying like I need a treatise on all of those things. But I also feel like <laughs> as you get farther into Hitchcock's career, he's willing to kind of lean into those weirdness factors a little bit more. Uh, when I was reading a little bit about this movie today, Brad, they they said like this is the first movie where Hitchcock really started to work with themes like the mother character. And he mm-hmm. he has like overbearing moms as a theme in all of his movies pretty much after this, like even North by Northwest. It's played for laughs, but that's what the mother character in that movie is like. I wonder what Hitchcock's mom was like. Yeah, I think that's what his biographers are always saying. Like <laughs> he he ties his uh, his own weird upbringing with his mom into these movies. And it's interesting. And I think it's noteworthy as like a footnote to his career, but it just feels a little underbaked. So are you saying that you didn't like the mother character in this? I'm not saying I didn't like her. I think she's like serves the purpose that she needs to serve as basically like a plot device. I guess what I'm what I'm saying is like there are even if you don't like add another scene where Cary Grant's like, huh, so your husband's a weirdo, huh? Like there's just (laughs) there's ways that you could have kind of leaned into the eyebrow raising factor of it all. Like Ingrid Bergman doesn't ever seem to be like, huh? That's a weird dynamic, you know, and I think that like even in some of the direction of the movie, Hitchcock could have just like directed his actors to milk moments a little more or be a little more confused or curious. It just seems like there's something there that they completely leave on the table and never touch. And I don't know if that has to do with the Hayes Code or what, but it's an interesting thing in a movie about a weird, a weirdo Nazi who lives in South America. And I'm like, that would have been interesting if they had mentioned that or explored it at all. See, I, I'm I'm going to be honest with you, Bob. I don't I don't think that there was as much weird sexual tension between Claude Rains and his mom. I'm not saying sexual tension. I'm just saying like the way that he becomes a little boy around her and is constantly like going to her for help and aid. It's a very clearly like there's some Freudian stuff going on in this movie. I just think it's an interesting choice. I actually did not expect to spend multiple minutes talking about this one plot point. But (laughs) I guess what I'm saying is it is just a microcosm of the fact that like a lot of this movie feels underbaked and that when Hitchcock finally decides to just make it a spy thriller in the last half hour, the movie really works for me. It's just all of these either underdeveloped things and or loose threads that never get connected that make it kind of a frustrating experience overall for me. Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% with you there. I, I think that with the entire film, yeah, half-baked is a good way of putting it. It feels like the editing is like, well, we're done now. Next. And, <laughs> and, they the, just yeah. like and then there are times on. where it's like we have been watching them, you know, fall in love and lovey-dovey eyes at each other for 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're like in another country and it's been like weeks and weeks and they're like, all right, yep. so you're going to marry this guy? And I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yep. How much time did we skip just now? Also, I think that you've always just been a whore and I will never trust you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait, whoa, what? What is going on here? I think this is a perfect place, Brad. On that note, you know, on the note that you always want to end on right there. This is a perfect <laughs> place for us to stop because I do want to talk about things that really, really worked for me about this movie when we come back. And almost all of them have to do with Hitchcock's direction and his visual style. So let's stop here. Let's drink this 1792 and then we'll come back and give the movie a little bit of love. What do you say? Let's get to it. 
All right. So today we are checking out 1792 Small Batch. Brad, believe it or not, I think this is the first 1792 product we've ever had on the show. Which is crazy to me because I've had a bottle of it on my shelf for years. I have a bottle mm -hmm. of foolproof on my shelf. It's some of my favorite whiskey. It's really, really good stuff. And we actually had uh, a listener send us some samples of almost the whole flight of 1792 products. And we've been trying to work them in. And it just hasn't happened for, I don't know, like three or four seasons now. So mm -hmm. like we're finally getting around to it. But over the next five weeks, we're going to be trying five different kinds of 1792, starting today with their flagship product, the small batch. Yeah, the, so their small batch comes at 93.7 proof, which is actually a proof that I'm very excited about. Uh, I like that 90 to 95 range. Mm -hmm. It's such a weirdly specific number. I don't know if it mm -hmm. has any significance, but like you never see decimals unless it's like a single barrel. It's just so weird yeah. to see 93.7. I was say, I feel like once you get in the 110s and up is when you start to see decimals. Mm -hmm. But sure, man, 93.7. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> so 1792 says that they have a high rye mash bill, which is crazy because, you know, I don't want to jump ahead into the nose. I don't pick up a ton of rye on this. Uh, but it is a fan favorite. And like I said, when we get to the foolproof, I think I'm just going to be gushing and gushing. But when it comes to readily available 30-ish dollar bottles of whiskey, this is one that is like, it's in the upper tier of those. It could be gifted. It's a beautiful bottle to look at. And so it's high time, Brad, that we try some 1792. So what do you say we dive into the nose? Yeah, so the nose is a relatively simple nose. I got some peanuts, some caramel, some vanilla, and a little bit of leather. Uh, it was intriguing, but nothing really stood out to me. There wasn't a lot of depth to it. Uh, I'll give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I'm going to be a little higher than that. It's a beautifully sweet nose. There's a lot of caramel. I almost get like some pink bubble gum on it as well. I get a little bit of the rye because it comes through with like a, a little bit of a sour note. And I don't mean like sour mash, but I mean like a dill kind of a thing. There's a little bit of that underlying this. Uh, again, it doesn't nose like a high rye. It noses more like a weeded bourbon. And so that's when I looked up the mash bill, I was kind of surprised to see that. I still think it works really well, especially, you know, Brad, in my mind, I'm going to be comparing this to like Elijah Craig or, you know, uh, what's another $30 bottle of whiskey, what, whatever you might, I don't know, Jim Beam double oaked or something like it's yeah. it's a mid shelf product and it's the entry level version of this brand. I think it smells really, really good for that kind of thing. I would definitely choose this over something like a Jack Daniels, for instance. I'm going to give it an eight out of ten on the nose. See, I yeah, having drank the entire thing, I, I think eight out of ten is really high for this, Bob. The palate was not great. There's some caramel, the vanilla kind of comes through, some of those rye spices start to happen. For me, though, it was really harsh. Hmm. Like, I like I would have guessed that this was a much higher proof. The ethanol kind of overpowers the flavor. I give it a five and a half out of ten. Wow. Dude, I'm wondering if the samples that we have had sitting on our shelf for too long have gotten oxidized or something. Because I'm drinking out of the bottle from my shelf, and I'm not getting any of that. Like, next time I see you, I'm going to bring the bottle and just give it to you and be like, is this the same thing you tried? Because this is really, really beautiful, man. I get black cherry on this. On the palate, it does get, like, very oaky and tobacco and leather forward. 
but it doesn't tip into bitterness. It doesn't tip into sourness and it never gets harsh for me. And you know, Brad, like we've, we've tried whiskeys that are not high proof that still drank really harsh. Like that, uh, the original Blanton's that we tried, this doesn't do that for me. So like, it's not that I don't trust your palate, but I'm also wondering like, huh, what's going on with that sample that you have? Cause I'm going to give this yeah. an eight and a half out of 10. Yeah, no, this is five and a half on the palate. It's a six on the finish. It's kind of generically sweet with a little bit of oakiness. Uh, it's it's fine on the finish. Uh, I I don't know. What were your notes? Sometimes I I wonder if you know how dismissive you are. Like I oh I just spent thirty seconds saying, "Hey, I totally trust you. I think maybe your sample's off." And then you your first words were, "Yeah, no, it's a five and a half." Like, like yeah. you, you just completely dismissed what I said. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the finish is really good on this. Uh, once again, I think that it is. It's like candy sweet. I get that bubble gum coming back a little bit, uh, a little bit of leather, some toasted oak on the finish. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the finish. And man, I wish we were in the same room trying this out of the same bottle because I just <laughs> I really need to know. Yeah. You got to get it to me, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm willing to try it. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I feel like this is going sideways. I'll just tell you five out of 10 on balance, five out of 10 on value for me. Mm. Uh, like th- this is $33 in the state of Ohio. I think that's overpriced. It, it used to be apparently around like the 26 to $28 range. If that was the case, I think I'd come up to like a six and a half or a seven, but over $30, what I am drinking is a it's a simple palette. It has harsh edges. I just don't think it's worth that thirty plus dollar price range. Mm. This is a rough day for you on film and whiskey. A, a movie <laughs> you a don't, time, a man. movie you don't like, a whiskey you don't like. I'm gonna give no. it a seven and a half on balance. I'm gonna give it an eight on value uh, because what I'm drinking is pretty good, and that's bringing me out to a thirty nine point five. We're going to be in vastly different places here, I suspect. Yeah, Bob, I'm sitting at a 28.5 out of 50. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Oh, man. I can't. Yeah. Wait, hold on. 39.5. Ele- and you said 28.5? Yeah, I was going to say 11 points away from each other might be the, one of the biggest gaps we've ever had. Ever, ever. Yeah. Dude, I can't wait to see you again. I'm like, I'm going to, first thing I do is just like pour this down your throat. Just <laughs> straight down the gullet. Tell me what you think now. <laughs> uh, we're coming out to an average of just a 34 out of 50 or a 68 out of 100. This is an interesting one because I'm not going to ask you like, do you recommend? It's it's clear you don't. <laughs> it's clear that nope. I do. I think for $30, it's almost worth buying the bottle just to determine which of us is wrong because we are so at odds on this one. Yeah, I was going to say, like, $33 is not the cheapest of whiskeys. That's in the getting into the mid-tier whiskey range, but it's $30. Like, you know, after tax, you're spending $35. It's not that bad. If you want to try it out for yourself, go for it. I I mean, I guess I'd say this. If you want to determine who is right, Bob or Brad, Go to the bar, yeah. get a pour of it. It's readily available. You'll probably spend four or five dollars. I was gonna on say this. Is, yeah, this is like a five six dollar pour max. Yeah, totally worth it. Try it out. Get on Instagram. Tell me how right I am. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we can move on to talking about notorious. What an economical episode this is, Brad. We're gonna get out of here in in well under an hour today. 
Yeah, flying through. All right, let's get back to talking about Notorious. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody, that was 1792 Small Batch, a whiskey that was a quite a small performer, if I do say so myself. Mm. I've never been called a small performer, Brad, so I wouldn't know. Ah, <laughs> sex jokes. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> now now your challenge is segue us into the next segment <laughs> you know what else has never been known as small canada oh and there it is favorite segment two facts and a falsehood brad is gonna try to stump you ball to our right and what is wrong Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this film, one of which is a complete lie. I am always interested in two facts and a falsehood. Well, period. Just I, I always am. I'm especially interested because I am still one game away from securing a 500 season. <laughs> but I am even more interested because Brad clearly does not like this movie. And I'm interested to see how that affects his fact-slash-fiction writing. So, Brad, Ooh. with all that said, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, director Sir Alfred Hitchcock and screenwriter Ben Hecht consulted a Nobel Prize-winning physicist on how to make an atomic bomb. He refused to answer, but confirmed that the principal ingredient, uranium, could fit into a wine bottle. Hmm. Fact number two, Hitchcock had the set for the Sebastian home rebuilt three times after finding himself dissatisfied with the look of the entrance hall, first thinking it too small, then too large. Fact number three, Claude Rains was made to stand on a box for several of his scenes with Ingrid Bergman. This gave the strange effect that Rains and Cary Grant were slightly taller than Bergman, while Grant was actually about seven inches taller than Rain. Interesting. Number one is sticking out to me, and, and here's why. Because I know that Hitchcock has been quoted as saying, like, we did seek out a physicist when we were writing the script because the FBI followed me around for a year afterwards because no one knew about uranium. Now, after the bomb goes off and the Trinity tests and all of their information becomes public, people understand that it's uranium. But like when they were developing this movie, David O. Selznick was originally attached as producer and he thought the uranium thing was confusing as hell. He had no idea what was going on. Because, again, the world didn't know about the bomb they were building. Isn't that, isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah. That, like, at the time this movie came out, everybody's like, I, I don't get what these scientists are working on. <laughs> and anybody, like, I don't know, post-1950 is immediately like, nuclear warfare, yep. everybody. The, uh, so the thing is, though, having seen Oppenheimer a number of times now, the vessel that they use to show how much uranium they need is clearly bigger than a wine bottle. So I'm also like, is Brad going to be so nitpicky that he would add that little fictional thing to the end of what is otherwise a factual statement? Am I am I feeling petty after watching a movie I didn't like mm. and drinking a whiskey that I vastly disliked? So the second one, again, is the innocuous sounding one of the three, which you got me with last week. And the third one, I don't remember. <laughs> Would you like me to read it? Just to summarize. <laughs> what, was the, what was the keywords? Claude, Claude Rain stood on oh, a yeah, box. Oh, yeah, stood on a box. He seemed like a short guy. 
we we do stand a short king here on film and whiskey and mm. um he was short in casablanca so i'm gonna say three is true i'm gonna say two is true too and and i'm gonna suspect that you tried to get me with number one and i'll say one is the falsehood bob today was a beautiful opportunity to reach 500 for you mm. and in this very moment you have not achieved that victory. Dang it. Ugh. <laughs> what was the falsehood, man? Number two. Nah. Ugh. Nah. You got me twice in a row at the one that I was least concerned about. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you started talking about number one for like three minutes, I was like, oh, I, 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 got, I him. got him. Got I got him. <laughs> man, that's the sucky thing is like, I knew that part of that was true. Mm-hmm. And I also know that you're doing your best to trip me up here. So I was like, oh, maybe he did. I'm psyching myself out now is what here's I'm saying. A, here's a question. If I had said uh, Sir Alfred Hitchcock and screenwriter Ben Hecht consulted Nobel Prize winner Dr. Robert Milliken on how to make an atomic bomb, blah, 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 blah. Would that have changed your answer? Probably. I think that was the guy's name, right? It was. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows, man? What's done is done, Brad. What's done is done. I'm a winner. Uh, and I am I at think that 15 puts me and 13. At, I was going to say that puts me at 13 and 15. One step closer to making you 15 and 17, Bob. All I have to do is win one more. I have to not blow a 3-1 lead in these last four episodes. <laughs> are, are you the Warriors? <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, man. Let's talk about Notorious. And important disclaimer, we are talking about the 1946 film Notorious and not, in fact, the 2009 biopic about the Notorious B.I.G. <laughs> I know that if that you've made it this far, you probably know that, but it's just, you know, it's important that we mention that. I mean, it, it sounds like it's probably the same movie at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I was really impressed with the camera work in this movie, Brad. The camera is constantly moving. There are a number of oneers in this movie that are, like, really beautiful. Like, it'll be, mm-hmm. it, it starts on uh, an image of a coffee cup on a table, and then it tilts up to Ingrid Bergman, and the camera moves on a dolly over to where Claude Rains is sitting, and then it swivels around and shows the mother, and it's all done in one consecutive shot. And there is one shot in this movie that I have come to understand after I went, oh, crap, that's a cool shot, and then saw it all over the internet. That is, like, the shot. And I'm wondering if you also picked up on it as the shot from this movie. It's Cary Grant standing in the door. It's not. I mean, that's a cool really? shot. But the shot that, oh. like, go ahead. I was going to say, for me, like, the one shot from the film that I was blown away by was when she's kind of laying half upside down sideways as she's drunk. Mm. And he kind of has this, like, uh, kind of has, like, a Dutch angle, cockeyed, you know, he's lit in a really interesting way. I, I loved that shot near the start of the film. That was a cool shot, too. And I have a list of, like, these were cool shots. But the one the one that uh, like has essays written about it is she has just figured out that she needs to steal this key from him. She steals the key and then it fades to them having gotten ready for this party and they're having this dinner party. And the shot starts like in the very upper corner of like the ceiling of their grand hall. And it's a tracking shot that was done in the 40s when cameras weighed millions of pounds. And I don't know how they did it, but it goes from the balcony all the way down to the first floor and it becomes a close up of her hand holding this key where the camera's like 
two inches away from her hand. And for the love of me, I still don't understand how they pulled that shot off. It is like a crazy, crazy shot when you consider the time period. Didn't they just like zoom in, Bob? (laughs) I don't believe they did. I don't think it was a zoom. (laughs) (laughs) You just, you just got to build like, you you just like, you just pinch your fingers on the screen on the iPhone and then it just does what you want it to do. Yeah, that's it, man. I don't I don't know what you're uh, freaking out about here. You know, I often find myself wondering, why didn't Hitchcock just use more drones? Yes. Yeah, I think some drone shots really <laughs> could have added to this movie, Bob. <laughs> can, I, can I just say it as a side? I, like, drone shots suck in movies. Like, 92% of drone shots feel so out of place mm-hmm. compared to the rest of the traditional cinematography. Yep. That they just ruin movie scenes. Yeah, and it's not even just like overhead shots of cities. It's spe- like it's very specifically drone shots. You can tell when mm-hmm. something's filmed by a drone because they yes. tried. They've tried to replace every shot that used to be called a helicopter shot with drone shots. And like when you watch the original West Side Story, and it starts with that montage of like overhead shots. It's a yeah. helicopter shot, and sometimes you can tell like the camera jiggles a little. Because of like the the it's propeller a helicopter, yes. well, I mean the opening of The Shining. Yeah, hundred percent. You know what though? It looks better than a drone shot. I'm a hundred percent with you, man. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, get those helicopters up there, baby. Let's talk about the visual look of this movie, Brad. I think if there is one thing that is just staggering about this movie, it's how well shot it is. I, I don't know if I'm with you, Bob. Ooh. Like, I, like not in the sense that it is poorly shot. I thought that there were multiple, you know, like the tracking shot you just talked about, the Dutch angle of of drunk Ingrid Bergman looking at Cary Grant. You know, there, like there are scenes in the movie that I enjoy, but overall it felt like pretty standard fare for the 40s to me. Oh, interesting. Like the scene where she's driving drunk and there's like a fake background. Oh, yeah, a, for sure. You know what I mean? Like that, that reminded me of To Catch a Thief. There's the moment where, well, not even just a moment. There's many times where they're like sitting in a restaurant or a cafe and everything behind them is like, you know, quote unquote green screen. Yep. Like there's enough of things like that that I was just kind of like, yeah, this feels like it's of its time. That's a fair point. And those are especially prevalent in the first half of the movie. And I don't yes. like it almost makes me wonder, like, I wish I could see the shooting schedule on this because it feels like mm. some of this stuff was rushed. But then when you get to the back half of the movie, that camera is like Hitchcock makes such good use of close ups in this movie. And you don't get a ton of really close close ups until the tension starts to ratchet. And then it's like, yeah, when Bergman starts to figure out what's going on, there's close ups on her face. There's close ups on the mom. There's close ups on Claude Rains. The first time that she's trying to hide the key from him and she like. He's like kissing the palms of her hands and then she throws her arms around him. It cuts yeah, to a close up like that's it's such a good shot. And he makes this really claustrophobic environment by continuing to move the camera closer and closer to people as the movie winds down. And so I think like the actual camera work is awesome. But you're right. There's like these weird rear projection moments throughout the movie that look not just fake by our standards, but like even in 1946, I feel like there are people mm-hmm. in the audience that were pointing at it and saying, huh, did you not have the budget to just like, right, put a beach in the background? Right, exactly. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think for me, if I could speak more generally just on the movie as a whole, 
the last like 20 minutes of this film worked pretty well for me. Like once Claude Rains realizes she's a spy, he talks about his predicament with his mom and they decide to poison her. From there to the end of the film, I'm I'm in. I, I'm I'm locked in. I'm enjoying it. I think that it it has a little bit of a anti-climactic ending, but overall, I was I was locked in. Really enjoyed the last twenty minutes, and like you said, I think the cinematography does a big part in that because it becomes more dynamic. He's more active with the tension that he creates through editing and through camera work. I just wish he had done more of it throughout. All right, Brad. Well, I think it's time for us to get to our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pick a movie to pair up with this one. To make the perfect double feature, Brad, I'm curious to know what you would consider a quote-unquote perfect double feature since you didn't like this movie. Are you going to go somewhere that's like, this will redeem the pair, or are you going to thematically pair it up with another movie that you don't like and just make a miserable night for yourself? And while you think about how to do that, Brad, I'm going to go ahead and jump in with mine. I think an easy one would be to catch a thief because it's a movie that we're not totally in love with. It's Cary Grant, it's Alfred Hitchcock, it's a romance, and some, you know, espionage as well. I think I'm going to go with a movie that I really liked from the mid-2000s called The American. This is a George Clooney movie set in, I think, Italy? And it's a very slow-moving spy espionage movie as well that really leans into the romance aspect to go along with the spy stuff. I think it's a fun pairing. I actually like that movie a lot better than I like this movie. And you get the modern day Cary Grant with George Clooney. So I'm going to pair it up with The American. Bob, I'm not going to lie. I am struggling to think of a good pairing for this film. And, and not necessarily just because I didn't care for this film. There's stuff that worked for me in the film. I think that because I want more people to see it, I think I'll pair it with Charade. Hmm. I think that Charade nails the thriller aspects way better i think it nails the comedy aspects that never come across in this film way better i think the charade is just a, a daggone good movie so you don't have to watch notorious just go watch charade <laughs> the covert anti-double i love it <laughs> let's make it a single by just eliminating this movie and watching another one instead i love it dude all right so i picked the american brad picked charade Let's give this movie some final scores. And Brad, I know that it sounds like I have been really crapping on this movie. I'm telling you, I think the last half of this movie, but you know, I would call it the last 40 minutes were almost perfect for me, like movie making wise. I think that Hitchcock is really at the top of his game once he decides this is going to be a straight thriller. It's like a nine and a half for me in the back half of the movie. And it's like a four in the first half. And so when I finished it, I was like, man, I think that he landed the plane so well that I might give this movie an 8 out of 10 overall. And as I've been talking with you about it, I'm like, all right, it's probably not an 8. But I do think that in the balance of things, I enjoyed it a lot more than I didn't. So I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, I I think that this is an enjoyable film. Like, I, I enjoyed Cary Grant. I enjoyed Claude Rains. I enjoyed Ingrid Bergman. I, I think they all gave pretty solid performances. 
I'm going to put the blame here on Hitchcock. I, I just don't think that he tells a compelling story. And I think that the script kind of suffers a lot and it, and it causes the actors to suffer as well. So I'll give it a six out of 10, Bob. Wow. Not, not something I'd be coming da- back to anytime soon. Not that you're going to pick one or the other in real life, but like this or To Catch a Thief. Oh, that's hard. I think I'd go with this. I think this one had more intrigue and more inventive camera work. And I just like yeah. Ingrid Bergman better than I like Grace Kelly. So like this one for me is the clear winner between the two. I think that I find To Catch a Thief to be a much more beautiful film looking. But overall, I would say Notorious is probably the better film. Well, Brad, there you have it. I'm coming out to a seven and a half. You're coming out to a six on a movie that people seem to generally really like. So if you've seen Notorious, I'd love to hear from you because it seems like it worked better for you than it did for us. Let us know what you think on our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto our Discord. We are on there every single day having a conversation with you guys about movies, whiskey, and the world at large. So join the conversation. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we're getting back on track because we're finishing this season with four absolute bangers. And it starts with perhaps Hitchcock's most inventive movie, 1948's Rope. So join us for that next week. Until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.